I figure if you all can sit, then I can sit too. How's that? <laughs> can a Christian pray to Jesus? That's what I want to speak about for a few moments. Uh, this is a somewhat controversial matter. Uh, I may <clears throat> upset what you may think, uh, may not, I don't know. Uh, but if it does turn you off, uh, don't turn off too quick. Just hear me out and let's see what the scriptures actually say about the matter under discussion. <clears throat> Can a Christian pray to Jesus? Well, there's two objections I'd like to raise. Uh, I, I think they're the better objections. The first one is uh, the Lord taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, uh, Matthew 6 and 9. The second one, Jesus said in the future, nothing would be asked of him. During the time he was alive, of course, the apostles asked him for things. And now he's saying in the future, nothing will be asked of him. Uh, does that mean we're not supposed to ask him for anything? Some believe that it is. Uh, it's my uh, burden to show you that that's not the case. In that day, you will ask me nothing, the Lord said. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Okay? It sounds like in the future, you don't ask the Lord Jesus for nothing. Uh, you ask the Father, and he'll give it to you instead. Uh, let's look at what these two passages are actually teaching. Uh, Jesus taught in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven. Uh, one brother, Rule, he's uh, very prominent in our great brotherhood. Uh, when he speaks, a lot of people listen. And uh, what he said at a lectureship not long ago is one may sing words to Jesus but may not speak the same words to him. Okay, do you understand? One may sing words to Jesus, praising him, asking him, petitioning him, but you can't speak the words. You can sing them, but you can't speak them. And when I saw that, I thought, that's a little bit unusual. But the uh, first thing that popped in my mind, of course, was Ephesians 5 and 19, where the Apostle Paul said, we are speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, Paul uses the two terms synonymously. They're interchangeable. In other words, in Paul's mind, it means the same thing. But this brother of ours who is so well-respected that uh, a lot of little preachers will take what he said and run with it, uh, he said just the opposite. You can sing it, but you can't say it. Doesn't sound right, does it? You can sing a request to the Lord Jesus, but you can't say it? Does that sound right to anybody? I had a trouble with that when I first heard it. Uh, the prayer uh, under consideration, of course, is Matthew 6, 9 through 13, uh, which Chris read just a few moments ago. Uh, a lot of folks, they refer to this as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but when you stop and think about it, you can see that that's not really correct. I know uh, on the airplane, on a movie one time, 
when uh, the airplane was going down, there was a woman that was repeating this prayer uh, word for word. Uh, in truth, this isn't the Lord's Prayer. Uh, if you want to see the Lord's Prayer, you want to read John chapter 17. That is the Lord's Prayer to his Father. This, on the other hand, isn't the Lord's Prayer. It's rather, it's a model prayer. It's an example, it's a pattern that we can go by, teaching us how to pray, okay? Giving us an idea how we should pray. Uh, but what about prayer for the sick? He, he says nothing about that here. We, we go to James chapter 5 and verse 14. James said, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. In the model prayer, the Lord said nothing about praying for the sick. But we go to another passage and we find that we're supposed to pray for the sick. The model prayer isn't a verbatim rule. The model prayer isn't something that must be repeated word for word. The model prayer isn't a limitation on our prayer. It's a model, an example to help get us started in our prayer life. But what we can see when we look at other scriptures, it changes a little bit. Those uh, who teach uh, in the field of hermeneutics, they refer to this as the expansion principle. It's where you add scriptures together. And this is what David said in the 119th Psalm. He said, the entirety of your word is truth. Everything the Lord has to say on a given subject, that's what constitutes truth. If you read one verse, if you read the model prayer, for example, in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and if you limit prayer to that only, then you can't pray for the sick. But if you apply the expansion rule, well, you can go by what James says, now we have divine permission to pray for the sick. This is a lesson that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about except for the fact that we have to use the expansion rule when we study the Holy Scriptures. We've got to look at the big picture and not limit ourselves to one small area of the Scripture. In Mark 16 and 16, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. We've got certain elements in there. First of all, there's believe. And then he adds to that baptism followed by <clears throat> salvation. Okay? He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Now, a lot of people in the Protestant, well, Catholicism as well, uh, they, they, they do not apply the expansion rule. They'll take a, a verse in the Bible, especially when it has to do with faith. Uh, Ephesians 2 and 8, for example. Uh, By grace are you saved through faith. In order to be saved, a person must believe. And they appeal to Ephesians 2 and 8 in order to come to that conclusion. 
Well, that's true. That is what the apostle is saying in Ephesians 2 and 8. But when you apply the expansion rule, you find out that's not really the case at all. For example, if we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter told people who asked, what must we do? Obviously, wanting to right their wrong, to be saved, he said, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, here's how the expansion rule is applied. Remission of sins and saved, those are the same thing, so you can cross them out. You have baptism in both verses. You can cross them two out. The only difference in the instruction between Mark 16, 16 and Acts 2, 38 is one says you must believe, the other one says you must repent. Which one do we go by? The expansion rule says you go by both of them. And you come up with something like this. <clears throat> he who believes and repents is baptized and is saved. Okay? That's the way we come to the conclusion of what the truth is. Now, this isn't all the Bible has to say about the matter. We can also look at John 6:45. Jesus said they must be taught by God before they can be saved. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, Paul said, faith comes by the word of God. In other words, for a person, before a person can believe, they must hear God's word. So before believes comes knowledge and acquisition of the word of God. And when a person knows, then they can believe, and now they have a reason to repent. And in John 6, oh, I put down the wrong verse. Uh, in Romans 10, in verse 10, Paul said, With a mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So we find another element that goes into one being saved. When you put it all together, you've got being taught, having faith, repenting, confessing, being baptized, salvation. That's the expansion rule. You have to take it all in order to know what the will of God is in any given matter. Now, let's look at the second one. Jesus said in the future, nothing would be asked of him. <clears throat> what was he talking about? The text, or the context rather, uh, raises questions in my mind. In that day, you will ask me nothing. What day? What day is he talking about? When we go to heaven, the day of judgment, what, what day is under We've got to figure out the answer to that question. Jesus must go away. That's the context. I've got to go away. The apostles, man, they don't understand. What do you mean go away? You don't have to go away. Stay here with us. No, i got to go away. And they, they, don't, they don't want that. It makes them sad. They, they don't want their good friend to leave them. They got high hopes for the future. But he's got to go away. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. There's a lot of things, boys, I want to tell you. But you're not up to it yet. You're not ready. You haven't come to a point in your life where you can accept this truth. It'll shake you up. It'll, it'll knock you off your, your feet. It's too much for you to bear. I want to tell you, but I can't tell you because it's going to do a lot of damage. 
However, Jesus continued, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, they don't know it. Whatever he hears from me, he's saying, he will speak. And he will tell you about the things that are yet to come. He will enlighten you on many things. He will guide you into all truth. They don't understand. Jesus said, I got to go away. He can't tell them why, because they're not up to it. They can't understand yet. But the Holy Spirit will come in my absence. And he, at the appropriate time, will guide you into all truth. Make a footnote of that in your mind because it's important to what we're coming to. A little while, he said, you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me because I go to the Father. And these guys are sitting there, what in the world is he talking about? A little while, and we won't see him, and then another little while, we're going to see What is that all about? Why is he going away? They're confused. They don't understand. Jesus went on to say in verse 20, Most assuredly I say to you, you will weep and you will lament. Why? i got to go away. And it's going to make you weep when I do. You'll weep, my disciples, but the world, oh no, the world will rejoice. The world will be happy at my death. Satan and the demons will jump for joy and shout to the heavens. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow is going to be short-lived. Your sorrow will be turned into joy shortly. Therefore, you now have sorrow because I must go away. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. Your sadness will turn into happiness, and your joy no one will be able to take from you. He's talking about seeing him resurrected from the dead. They're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is life beyond the grave. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Now we can see what the day is. What day is he talking about? I, when I see you again. We know the third day after he was murdered, that the Son of God came forth and he appeared to his apostles. And now he said, in that day, you'll ask me nothing about where I went. Why? Because the Holy Spirit guided them into all truth. When Jesus was put to death, the Spirit of God enlightened them. They knew it happened now. He had to die on the cross that he could be an atonement for our sins. But he would come back on the third day, never to die again. Now Jesus said, in that day, you don't have to ask me anymore. Why? Because you know what happened. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying that you can never ask me for anything. We know that can't be the case at all. And based on the expansion principle, if there is scriptural evidence elsewhere that disciples prayed to Jesus, then the arguments against praying to Jesus fail. Okay? That's very important to remember. Did the disciples pray to Jesus? Well, let's look. 
and this is only a partial viewing of what's available. Uh, Vine, in his uh, record of Christ, said the Lord did not mean that no prayer must be offered to him afterwards, speaking about what we just looked at, because they did address him in prayer afterwards. And he quotes three verses in uh, his book. Acts chapter 1, verse 24. The apostles prayed and said to Jesus, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. Judas Iscariot was dead, one of the twelve. He had to be replaced. The apostles didn't know who should replace him. So they came to the conclusion the appropriate person would be Jesus. Jesus is the one who chose the twelve. And Jesus is the one, in their minds, that should pick the next apostle to take Judas's place. But notice what they did. They prayed to Jesus. Prayer means to make a petition, and like in this case. They petitioned Jesus for advice, for instruction. We don't know who to select, Lord. Tell us which of these two men we ought to be appointed as an apostle. There's one prayer to Jesus. Because they thought it proper that the Lord, who had chosen, chosen Judas, should also choose his successor. That statement was made by Brother J.W. McGarvey in his uh, commentary on the book of Acts. Uh, uh, John 14 and 14, Jesus said, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you ask me anything. He told the apostles that they could petition him if they needed to and wanted to. And what you want, I'll supply. In Acts 7, 59 and 60, they stoned Stephen. He was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Notice what's going on. Stephen is praying, calling on God, and he said, Jesus. Stephen was aware of the fact that Jesus was God. So he called on God. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen's about to die. He's being stoned to death. The Jews are all over him like ugly on an ape. He knew he was going to die. And he saw the Lord Jesus and he petitioned him. He prayed to him. Lord, receive my spirit when it exits my body. And then he said again, Another petition, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Stephen made two requests directly to Jesus. He didn't think it was wrong to pray to Jesus. Guy in Woods, he characterized the view that a person cannot address a petition of any kind to Christ 
Those who think you cannot pay pray to Christ, Brother Wood said. He said, that's absurd. And as a reflection of nitpicking, just trying to find something to bicker about, he cited the example of Stephen's prayer as contrary evidence. Brother Woods believed it was all right to pray to Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. Paul said, concerning the thorn in the flesh that he had, I pleaded with the Lord three times that this thorn might depart from me. And the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul concluded, Therefore, most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of the Christ may rest upon me. Let's think about it a moment. The, he pleaded with the Lord. The Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities. Why? That the strength of Jesus will make me perfect in my weakness. Or as Paul said it, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Who is he talking to? Obviously, he's talking to Jesus. He petitioned Jesus, please take this thorn away from me that I won't be tormented any longer. Paul didn't think it was wrong to pray to Jesus. We know he did. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul said, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. This is an interesting prayer right here. You see, prayers don't have to be long. Most of the prayers in the Bible are very short. Think about the model prayer. Well, you can read it probably in a minute. It's not very long. The Lord gave us the example, and that was the end of that. I mean, he didn't start quoting Bible verses and all that stuff. He said what he had to say, and that was the end of it. But when you look at the prayers in the New Testament, you're going to find out that they're relatively short. <clears throat> May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the conjunctive and. It's a petition to God. May God and Jesus. He's petitioning two individuals. But he's only got one request. May the Father, may Jesus direct our way to you. He was petitioning both the Father and the Son at the same time that they would direct his steps. Bind says, this prayer is addressed to the Lord Jesus conjointly with the word and with the Father. He prayed the two at the same time. And that's his commentary on First and Second Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts, establish you in every good word and works. Two requests are made here, comfort 
and establish. And he prays to Jesus and the Father, both of them, that this might be done for the Thessalonians, that they might find comfort, that they might be established in the faith. And they're asking the Father and the Son to let that happen. <clears throat> Leon Moore says scholars are virtually unanimous in the view that Paul's prayer is jointly addressed to both the Father and the Son. All Bible scholars know it. All language scholars know it. It's as plain as the nose on your face. You've got the conjunctive and that ties them together. And what God has joined together, let our man separate. Notice his next point, though. What is most unusual in this case is the fact that the request was made to Jesus first and then to the Father. Mostly Paul prayed to God. Occasionally he prayed to Jesus. And even rarer still, he prayed to both the Father and the Son. I'd say there's sometimes when he probably prayed to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Actually, when we pray to God, that's what we do. Wednesday night, Kevin led a closing prayer for us, and he, he said, Our Lord and our God. Who is he talking about? Our Lord and our God. Was he talking to the Father? Maybe. Was he talking to the Son? Perhaps. Was he speaking to all three? That's possible. And any choice would have been all right. Because many prayers are stated that way in the New Testament scriptures. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 and 13, Paul said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Both Fee and Earl said, this is not merely a statement about the apostles' gratitude to the Lord. This is an expression of thanksgiving to the Savior. We spend a lot of our time telling people about Jesus and all the good things he's done for us. We talk about Jesus dying on the cross to pay a debt that we can't pay. We talk about Jesus all the time. Am I to believe that I can talk about Jesus becoming a sacrifice for my sin, but I don't have the right to tell him thank you? I can't say, my Lord Jesus, thank you for all you've done for me. Am I to believe I can talk about him, but I can't thank him? Does that seem right to you? It doesn't seem right to me either. 
and it doesn't appear to be a rule that the apostles followed. While it usually is the case that Paul directs his prayers to God, here his gratitude is directed to Jesus. He was thanking him for what he'd done. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, to the church of God, which is a Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. To call upon the name of Christ is to worship his divine majesty and implore his sovereign protection. Jesus, please protect me throughout this day is basically what Paul's talking about. Jesus, please direct my steps throughout this day. We call on him sometimes to help us get through our challenges. Robertson says, the present tense form suggests an ongoing action. We keep on calling on him. And the middle voice underscores the strong individual interest of each person who reveres the Savior. Because of the love and adoration we have for him, we naturally appeal to him and express our gratitude. To call upon is to invoke his aid. To call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord is to invoke his aid as the Christ and the Messiah. We call on him because of who he is. The fact that we can call on him is indicative of our right to do so. This was by David Lipscomb and J.W. Shepard. May one worship Jesus. This is another challenge that we must deal with. If deity is worthy of worship, and he is, if Jesus is deity, and he is, I and the Father are one, then the conclusion is Jesus is worthy of worship. We are to worship deity. Jesus is deity. The conclusion is irresistible. We are to worship Jesus. As a matter of fact, the failure to do so on our part would be a failure to do what's required of us. It would be a denial of the deity of the Son of God. He's entitled to my worship because of who he is. So is the Holy Spirit. And of course, so is the Father. Somewhere along the line, we got a little bit sidetracked. Sometimes we forget about three persons of the Godhead. Sometimes we even forget there's a Holy Spirit. We should never do that. We should never do that. He's our God, and he's worthy of our worship. In John 5, verse 23, Jesus said, All should honor the Son. Notice, just as they honor the Father. We honor the Father. Jesus said we should honor the Son too. Why? 
because the Father and the Son are equal. Both of them are sovereign. He who does not honor the Son, he does not honor the Father who sent him. A failure on our part to honor the Son is to dishonor the Son and the Father as well. That's what Jesus is telling us here. We want to know the truth. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to know the truth. Can I worship Jesus? I worship the Father. Jesus is entitled to the same honor that the Father is. If I honor the Father, I should honor the Son. If I honor the Son, I should honor the Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? If I worship one, I worship all three. Because together they are God. <clears throat> Paul's man of sin is one who opposes, <clears throat> excuse me, and exalts himself against all that is called God, or that is worship. The man of sin opposes worship of God. If we say it's wrong to worship Jesus, then we're opposing the worship to God. And Paul said that's the spirit of the man of sin. Think about it. It is important. It's very important. Jesus is designated as God. John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus is God. You can't get no clearer than that. Acts 20, 28. Shepherd the church of God, which he, that would be God, which he purchased with his own blood. God purchased the church with his own blood. Who was that? Jesus. We have to understand who God is. In Hebrews 1 and 8, to the Son, the Father said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. The Father said to the Son, Your throne, O God. The Father acknowledged the fact that Jesus is God. The wise men worshiped Jesus, Matthew 2 and 2. They said, We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. If you read the text, they weren't told that they couldn't worship him. As a matter of fact, if you read the text, you're going to see that they did worship him. The apostles worshiped Jesus. In Matthew 14, verse 33, when they were caught out in the boat on a storm, he stilled the water. Then those who were in the boat, they came and worshiped him. Jesus didn't stop them. They wanted to worship him for what he had done for them. 
and he allowed them to do it. If it had been wrong, he would have stopped them. That's what Peter did with Cornelius. When Cornelius bowed before Peter, Peter said, uh-uh, don't do that, stand up. I'm just a man. But in this case, the apostles were allowed to worship Jesus. Even the angels worship Jesus. When God brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all my angels worship him, that infant born in a manger. Brother Thomas Warren said, I'll do this very quickly. Let us thank our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the love which he manifested in teaching us how to pray. O Jesus, thou Lamb of God, how deeply grateful we are for thy love, which resulted in the gift of thy life for us. Help us, we pray, to see every day Jesus, the Lamb who is the Lion. Help us to pray as thou hast taught us to pray. That's on the jacket of his book, Jesus, the Lamb who is the Lion. You probably may not know Brother Warren. In my estimation, Brother Warren is the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. He didn't have an equal. He debated the best philosophers the world had to offer, and none of them could stand before him. He was a brilliant man. He was one of my teachers for several years. I loved him. I marveled at his teaching. I actually marveled when this man talked. His words were so eloquent and so informative. Wendell Winkler said, speaking before an audience of preachers, may we pray to Jesus let me tell you something about that, brethren. You be very careful about the position you espouse on that, and I'm going to tell you why. We've got brethren that do nothing but hear a few speeches on the lecture program, and then they start to go out and mouth it. We need to be careful about repeating what these preachers say. Primarily, our prayers are to God in the name of Christ. But when brethren become so adamant that they say that we cannot pray to Jesus, we need to be very careful. Jesus is deity. If we're not careful, we can take some absurd position over here and reflect on his deity. I don't have much sympathy for that kind of business. I'm going to tell you something that's a little personal, but I think it's illustrative. Can't we thank Jesus during the Lord's Supper? When I get through with my primary Lord's Supper meditation, I conclude with a prayer, and here's my prayer. Father, I thank thee for thy unspeakable gifts. And Jesus, I thank thee for being willing to die for me. Is there anything wrong with that? Tell me something is wrong with that. I believe Brother Wendell Winkler was one of the 
best scholars of the 20th century. He was a brilliant man. He was an excellent teacher. He had so much knowledge that it amazed me to listen to that man speak. I couldn't write down what he said fast enough. So when he got done making his speech, I was the first one on the platform with him. And I asked him if he had a copy of that speech, the last part of it. And he did. He had it written down. He'd written it uh, that morning before he preached it. And I got that, those notes he had, and I took them home with me because I never heard anyone say that before, that he could pray to Jesus. Something to think about. I, uh, I've never prayed to Jesus in public. I don't know if that's right or wrong, to be honest with you. I'm not going to pray to Jesus in public because I know it could create a lot of problems. And perhaps it's best not to do that. I don't know. It may be wrong not to do that. But we got to make decisions what we're going to do. And I've chosen not to do it. But I do pray to Jesus often. I thank him often for saving me. I, I thank him more often for saving my family. Every day I ask him, time and again, to protect my children, all four of them, and my grandchildren. I ask Jesus to be with them, to take care of them, because I don't know that my heart could handle it if something bad happened. And every day I pray that he'll take care of all my babies. I love him so much it makes me ache. And I honestly believe if I didn't express my gratitude to him, I think I'd blow up. This is the first time I've ever publicly said that I prayed to Jesus. But I do. I don't do it in public. Too controversial for that. But I do it when I'm with myself. If you disagree with me, that's fine. But let me tell you this. Don't be quick to condemn anyone who prays to Jesus because it just might be that if you do, you may be walking in the same steps as the man of sin. If we're to worship Jesus as deity,
And we are. Be careful about being dogmatic. Because that could be a very grievous sin. Hey, I'm done. We, uh, we have a purpose, and that is to learn to be like our maker. To know him, to understand him, and to walk with him. We have a reason for being here, and it's noble. 